Good morning. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to be together on Time Change Sunday. Everybody feel good? It's a good one. Uh, always fun to preach on Time Change Sunday. Uh, very lively. And uh, we've been moving along in First uh, Peter. We are now in chapter 2. And man, just the transition from Ecclesiastes to now First Peter, it's just you could stop at any word and you could take a Sunday on it. And so these chapters are dense theologically and there's so much there. And so uh, we're going to get into it. So I hope you got enough sleep because there's a lot of good stuff in our passage this morning. So you can buckle up and we're going to uh, get right into it. No intro, happy time change, no time to waste. Verse one. Peter says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter now in chapter 2 turns and goes into detail about what it looks like to be in Christian community, and we see a list of things that are incompatible with God's people. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. And the language is put away these things. It's common in scripture. We see the the put off and put on language. And the alternative, Peter says, is that we should long for the pure spiritual milk. We see the metaphor used here of milk. Obviously, we all know milk is gross. (laughs) Nobody should drink milk. I try to skip over this passage quickly often. But for all the milk lovers, we'll slow down. You who refuse to turn from your ways. Peter uses this imagery and he says the truth of God's word is pure spiritual milk. And all around us, the pure spiritual milk of God's word is defiled. And we could be guilty of that as well. And this happens typically when we see the truth of scripture and we, like Adam and Eve come to scripture and the truth and the pure spiritual milk of God, and we say, did God really say that, right? And we defile the truth by letting our own sinful desires interpret scripture. The Bible says false teachers will twist the words of God. People at this time in Peter's day would have been asking, did Jesus really ask you to suffer? Did he really ask you to go through this much? As Peter's on the verge of being crucified himself. The world is twisting the word of God to please and entertain us, or twisting the word of God to justify the sinful desires of our flesh. 2021 Pew Research did a survey, and they asked a pretty simple question. If someone doesn't believe in God, can they go to heaven? 34% of professing Protestants said yes, and 68% of professing Catholics said yes. If you look at a lot of the spiritual landscape surveys, what we're seeing so often today is that most professing Christians believe that they have the final word on God's word and that they have the power to veto anything in scripture that doesn't feel right to them. People will say, I'm a Christian, but I just really don't agree with this. Or this is kind of just like my own life. I'm kind of free to do what I want to do. And so people build their own religion. 
when they turn away from the pure spiritual milk. And we find whatever church or whatever corner of the internet will affirm our views and the impulses that we want to indulge. And all of this matters not because we want to be grumpy this morning or we want to draw lines and identify the enemies this morning, but ultimately it matters when we look at verse 2. What does it say in verse 2? What is at stake in all of this? It says that what's at stake is salvation, right? And so many professing Christians will build their lives apart from the Word of God, and they've convinced themselves that if Jesus is a good guy, then he would just want us to be happy, and therefore he would affirm all of my decisions. And the answer is very simple in verse 2. God's Word is pure spiritual milk, and only the pure gospel leads to salvation. And this is the truth that we get to build our lives upon, and that's what we see. Look in verse 4. It says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's seven passages in the New Testament that quote from some of the stone passages in the Old Testament, and every single one of them identifies very clearly the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. And here we are, we see the stone was rejected and crucified, but that is not the final word. That God would choose to make a spiritual house from Christ and his church, so we see here this phrase, spiritual house. That sounds nice. I mean, for me, it's like, that's the only house that I could afford right now, the spiritual one. <laughs> Doesn't come with a roof that I'm aware of. It's in my price range. Scripture uses a lot of metaphors to describe things. I think we see a lot of things in this metaphor. We'll go through a few of them. First, we see the Christ is the foundation, right? very clear. Christ is building us into a spiritual house, and Christ himself is the foundation. He's not looking down on our house of stones and saying, that's a nice house of stones. Keep up the good work. In every metaphor we have for the church, whether from Peter or from Paul's writings, Christ is with the church. Paul calls him the head of the church. Look at Colossians chapter 1, very well known. It says, and he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This morning, I, this really felt like the part I should cut out, but we're just going to go, we're going to roll. I know everyone got one less hour of sleep this morning, so I thought we should read some legal documents as part of our time together. As a church, we're required to have bylaws like any corporation would, and these are rules of how a business or a corporation would function. And if you read the Village Church bylaws, Article 1 just tells you our address, which you know because you made it here. <laughs> Article 2 says that we're a nonprofit, and Article 3 is when it really starts. It's the first paragraph, and it's the foundation of the whole document that establishes this church that's required by the state. I put it on a slide because I thought it was really good. 
Article 3, the civil, civil and ecclesiastical government. The government of the church, also known as Village Church of Irvine, or the Village Church, is established and headed by Jesus Christ, who is the senior pastor of the church. The church is first and foremost an ecclesiastical body of believers, the supreme governing document of which is the Bible. The church is secondarily a corporation, the governance of which is established by its articles of incorporation and bylaws. The articles of incorporation and bylaws, however, are subordinate to the Bible and must be interpreted in light of the Bible. <laughs> so, we wrote these so the state of California could know very clearly that we established this church straight out of Colossians 1. And we established this church straight out of 1 Peter 2. And that is to say that we didn't establish this church, right? We got the stones in order according to Scripture in the documents. Amen? <laughs> Peter likes to refer back to the Old Testament and he calls Jesus the cornerstone of this new spiritual house. Look at verses 6 and 7. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What else do we see? Go back to verse 5. It says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Next thing we see is that the stones are kept together. There's a, a united purpose of the stones to be built into a house together, and God is glorified when the world sees the worth of God through the church. Peter doesn't say, you know, we could cover more ground if we just kind of scatter around, everybody kind of do your own thing. Instead, what we see is that the spiritual house imagery is incompatible with modern individualistic Christianity, right? Modern individualistic Christianity is a consumer religion. The Christian faith that we see very clearly laid out in Scripture is not just something that we consume, but it's something that we live in and we grow up in. You put roots in and you establish yourself in the faith with God's people. Because in God's perfect design, the church needs you, right? In God's perfect design, you need the people of God. We need each other. But so often what we see now is so many people who are professing Christians are just assembling their Christian life as a sort of hand-picked consumeristic mess of things, right? You say, I found this devotional book, so I, I read that. That gets me through the day. Check that box. I found this podcast I like. I like to learn new things. I found a few accounts I like to follow. I found a pastor that I love to watch on Sundays. Great service. He's in South Carolina. <laughs> 
we customize our own individual Christian experience. Like we're walking through a restaurant salad bar. This is before COVID, right? Salad bars, <laughs> I think, are illegal now. We need the spiritual house, right? That's what he's saying so clearly. We need the spiritual house, and the world is desperate to see the spiritual house. We're desperate to see what it looks like for Jesus to unite his people in love. Amen? Third thing we see really clearly. There is only one distinction among the stones. The entire spiritual house is made up of two kinds of stones. There's the cornerstone, Jesus. We got that part, very clear. And then there's the other stones, God's people. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus tells Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, out of that flows all sorts of theology, right? All sorts of even branches of thought and Many early church fathers would often say that Christ chose to build the church on Peter. That's fine. You could say that. Peter was a good stone. <laughs> then the Roman Catholic Church takes it one step further and says, you know, Peter was the first pope. And Peter's like, this is news to me. Have you read my writings? I am but a stone. <laughs> Apparently, they were just like, you know, Christ might be the cornerstone, but we also need a Pope stone. And he will drive around in a little bubble car. <laughs> and he needs to be very active on Twitter, warning us about our dependence on fossil fuels. That's clearly what God had in mind here. Peter seems to see things very clearly. There's Christ, the cornerstone, and there's the bride of Christ, the people, the church, the other stones. And so together as the church, we, we look at this, we look at God's design, and we say, God, you've united us together for your glory, however you think is best, and so we trust you in this. This is your design. We trust you with it, right? And then we get to verse 8. We see Peter continues with the Old Testament prophecy that for those who do not believe, this will be what? Verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So not only will they not be built into this spiritual house on top of the cornerstone of Christ, but instead Christ will be the stone, the thing, the idea that stumbles them, a stone that offends them. For anyone whose eyes have not been opened to see their need for a savior, the cross is foolishness, Scripture says. And in their darkness, they stumble and fall on this cornerstone. The very same cornerstone that is a joy for us, that is life for us. We'll come back to this. Keep going. Look at verse 9. Now, Peter gives us this beautiful picture of the family of God. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
four things really clear right here, right? Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. Let's go through them real quick. I'm going to stop on the last one, right? A chosen race. The spiritual church is being revealed in this. The people of God are united by faith, not by culture, not by ancestry. This is the every tribe and tongue language of Revelation chapter 7. And whatever your cultural background, this should be exciting to you. God is bringing together a family of his own. Second, a royal priesthood. We all belong to the priesthood. That is, that is to say, we all have access to God, N- not through our physical sacrifices, but through Christ's one sacrifice for all. And this incredible imagery that, that in Christ, the one thing that the world is desperate for is now alive in you. You're a royal priesthood. The story of the early church is that the gospel would spread on the roads and in the marketplaces because the church equipped and sent its people as a priesthood of believers filled with the spirit of God and the truth of God. The early church wasn't sent out with invite cards to come hear Peter preach. They weren't going out on the roads and saying, guys, if you want to hear more about Jesus, Peter's preaching this Sunday in Jerusalem. We got services at 9 and 11. We also have kids' classes, although we need some more volunteers. (laughs) They were sent out with knowledge of salvation and the Spirit of God in their hearts. That's what it looks like to be a royal priesthood, right? This is our desire as well. Third, he says, we're a holy nation. We're not united by geography. We're not united by politics or borders or boundaries. And our holiness is not dependent on us keeping the law because we have a holiness that is declared by God because of Christ who fulfilled the law for us. And now we walk in declared righteousness while we seek to be righteous. And fourth, we are a people for his own possession. (laughs) A people for his own possession. It's a simple statement to say, God holds us. We are not God. God is not us. We are his people. I wanted to take a little more time on this one because this is a big issue in our world today. It brings to mind a lot of cultural resistance today to so many things we see in scripture that are binary realities. We are seeing a culture right now that is growing increasing resistance to categories and labels and particularly binary categories, whether it's right or wrong, male or female, or the biggest one of all, the creator and his creation. And our culture is pushing us away from binary views. And so I love Peter's words here. We are a people for his own possession. We could say there's a cornerstone and there are the other stones. There is a holder and we are the held. There are ones who will build their lives upon the cornerstone. And there are the ones who will stumble and reject the cornerstone. 
And so often in our pride and in our autonomy, which is foolish, we resist the binaries of scripture, the way that God established order. And as Romans says, we seek to create God in our own image. We want to be God. We want to be in charge. We want to build life on ourselves and on our desires. We choose all of this rebellion when we just (laughs) reject the design of God. And so you look at all this and you say, no wonder we look throughout history. The gospel has always been best embraced among the poor and the broken. Prideful men and women are not looking for a cornerstone. As we consider this, and as we consider the stumbling stone and the many people that we know in our lives who stumble over the gospel truth, I think it hits really heavy for us. I'd ask you to just close your eyes for a second with me and I want to read this again for us. I would imagine in this moment, we could all think of someone we love who is stumbling over the cornerstone of Jesus. Peter says, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. There are people in your life who might need to crash and burn so much further than you could ever imagine, so much worse than you could ever want for them if they would ever be humbled enough to embrace their heavenly father. We believe we want autonomy. We believe we want control. The Bible's really clear. What we need is a new heart to see the joy of just belonging to God, to be a people for his own possession. And so I'd say, whoever comes to your mind when you think about this, you can be sure that they need your prayers. We have a world that's stumbling over the cornerstone. And so God's people need to be a people of prayer. Amen. Got two more verses. Let's look at those. Verse 11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So out of this beautiful identity that we have in Christ that Peter lays out for us, in verse 11, Peter now pleads with them to abstain from the passions of the flesh. What are the passions of the flesh? Many lists we can find in Scripture. Easy place to start is Galatians 5. Let's read it together. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we know what these things are, because the Bible tells us. 
But more importantly, Peter is saying, we have a God who has called us to say no to our feelings and our sinful desires. And that is a radical thing to say in the 21st century, right? We live in a society that increasingly elevates our feelings above all else. We live in a society that has placed right and wrong beneath our feelings. And so the lens that we use to interpret right from wrong has become for many just simply whatever I feel. And this happens when we reject the authority of God above ourselves. And here Peter says, don't do this. You might feel like doing these things. Don't do them. I love this quote from from Wayne Grudem in his writings on this passage. He says, such a command implies that inward desires are not uncontrollable, but can be consciously nurtured or restrained. This is a needed rebuke to our modern society, which takes feelings as a morally neutral given and disparages anyone who would say that some feelings and desires are wrong. It's <laughs> a good quote. It's exactly right. Grudem is saying we establish our feelings as the standard, and then we demand that all decisions submit to our feelings. But we look in our world and we say, <laughs> I mean, the moral standard that our society has adopted is kind of like the unsupervised toddler in a candy shop morality. Just do whatever feels right to you. But if you unleash a toddler unrestrained in a candy shop, you know how that story ends. <laughs> release just a room full of toddlers into a candy store, satisfying their feelings, rabid wolves insatiable, gummy worms flying everywhere. <laughs> 10 or 15 glorious minutes leading to a world of pain and sorrow. Soon you have toddlers curled up on the ground, calling out for their moms. <laughs> holding their stomachs, tears in their eyes. And anyone who watched that scene play out would know, I mean, this is so obvious, right? So we know that our feelings can't decide what is morality, but we also don't want to build a culture of heartless, cold morality. There has to be a third option between just do whatever you feel is right and reluctantly do what God said. And the third option, I think, is really clear in Scripture. We must believe that God's designs are perfect in the midst of feelings and emotions that will always be changing. Yeah? Maybe you could say the gospel-centric way of measuring all things or the gospel-centric lens with which we see and decipher this world. And it's what we see in verse 11, because Peter says, more than just abstain, he says, these things wage war against your soul. You have to believe that this is serious, right? 
Again, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Your soul is at stake. And God says, I made you and I know what's best for you. So flee from these things and run to the better thing. But most importantly, believe that the wisdom of God is good for you. When we get away from this, when we get away from just trying to modify our behavior we get into the heart of men. We get to learn the greater worth of following Christ. That's when we're really preaching the gospel to ourselves, right? This morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter's preaching a gospel message to us. And we want to be a gospel-centered church, right? What is a gospel-centered church? That's like a buzzword, right? It's easy for these things to be trendy things that we say even a source of pride, I go to a gospel-centered church. I don't go to some loosey-goosey fog machine church. (laughs) My pastor has tattoos. My pastor wears glasses, but he actually needs glasses. It's totally different. (laughs) It's like a real prescription inside of those frames. If he takes them off, he really, like he actually has to put them back on. Our Bible translation is way harder to read, so you know it's good. That's right. I go to a gospel-centered church. I think we should be able to define these things. I did my best this week for us. What is is gospel-centered teaching? Gospel-centered teaching places the work of Christ and our new identity as the foundation upon which we build our lives and find our motivations. What does that look like? I remember as a Christian teenager, (laughs) I heard a lot of sermons on the story of David and Bathsheba. It's a very natural teenage boy message, seventh grade. The message is very clear. Your hormones will murder people. And so in the story, David's men are off at war, and he commits adultery with a woman, and then he kills her husband, and it's a brutal story. And I remember so often my youth group, small group leader, would say something like, we know David should have been at war with his men, and he wasn't, and he was tempted, and he sinned, and that's bad. And the lesson, of course, is be where you're supposed to be to avoid sin. And so... All of you seventh grade boys need to control yourselves and make smarter choices. And then they move on to the application part of the sermon. And the application is, you know, you should try just group dating. Hang out at the local food court. If you have a girlfriend, don't go over to her house. Make smart choices. And then we close in prayer. And then we do prayer requests. And then everyone's dog is sick or whatever, you know, seventh grade. And I like that application because I like food courts, okay? But that's not a gospel message. That's not a gospel-centered seventh-grade boys Bible study. And what's sad is that you actually can find the gospel all throughout that story, right? We see this guy, David, he's elevated as king by God's people who thought, if we just had a king, then we'd be satisfied, and they were wrong. The only king they needed was God. 
His life becomes a downward spiral of sin and destruction, adultery and murder, but God in his mercy does not abandon him. David is broken over his sin. He repents. God restores him. And we see in David that sin is empty. And we see that there's great joy in giving our hearts to God, and God redeems the worst in us for his glory, even to the point that Jesus Christ would be born in the line of David, and that Jesus Christ would be the true king, a true king who would be without sin, who would never fail his people, and would lead God's people forever. And so we close our Bibles then, and we say, how could I ever want to sin against that God, right? How could I ever disobey a God who is that merciful to us? How could we ever think that sin could satisfy us more than the God of that story? Amen? And so we say, praise the Lord. God has given us the faith to see and know the emptiness of the world and the foolishness of our flesh. That's a gospel sermon, right? And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter can say with confidence, turn away from those things because by the grace and mercy of God, you have received something far greater and God is building you into a spiritual house. That's a gospel sermon. It doesn't place me at the center. It doesn't place my strategies at the center. It doesn't even place my problems at the center or my sin at the center of the story because my sin is gone. The grace and mercy of God is at the center of every gospel message and every gospel sermon and every gospel conversation. I hope you believe that. And I put it on a slide, so now you have to write it down. At the center of every gospel message, every gospel sermon, every gospel conversation is the grace and mercy of God. And if you're new to all this, if you've never even heard the gospel, I hope you see it, and we could run around trying to make ourselves worthy of God, and all of that will be empty. <clears throat> Scripture's really clear. God came for us and paid the price for us to make us his children, and it's a free gift that we receive. <clears throat> Let's finish up. Look again at verse 4 and 5. <clears throat> it says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There's one final thing we could say about the spiritual house that God is building. I think it's good news for us this morning. I guess that the church is alive because Christ is alive. The church is alive because Christ is alive. There's a living house because the cornerstone is alive and he has brought life to the stones. He's brought life to the church. Peter's writing to Christians who feel that the walls are caving in all around them. The persecution is ramping up. The apostle Paul is going to be killed in Rome very soon. Peter himself will be killed in Rome not long after. And yet the church is alive because Christ is alive. The stones are alive. 
because the cornerstone is alive. And so I don't know how you feel this morning. There's plenty of reasons to feel the weight of life today. There's plenty of reasons to feel the weight of our world and maybe the weight of relationships of your life. We see really clearly in our text, God's not offering us promises for the future in all of this. But what he shows us very clearly is that he has a design for how we walk through this life. That we are a spiritual house built upon the living cornerstone of Jesus. That's pretty good for us. Amen? Yeah. I want to give us some time to pray together. I want to lead us through this. And I think there's a lot for us to reflect on and to repent of and to consider as we think upon these things. And would you close your eyes and we'll take a few moments together. Bible says that God is making us a spiritual house together. Think about my life. Maybe you think about your life and you say, I see that. It all makes sense, but I feel like the majority of things that I'm walking through right now, I feel like I'm walking through pretty much just by myself. I just ask you to consider some things that you're walking through this morning. Maybe you feel like, I know God has given me the church. I know that God has given me his people. And yet, feel like I'm just walking this thing alone, walking these things alone. I ask you to consider what, what would it look like for you to share your burdens with the people of God that God has given to you. Would you take a moment and maybe just take this opportunity to repent and repent of some of these things that you say, God, this is a burden that I've been carrying that you, you never told me I was supposed to hold on my own. Maybe you need to repent, just not believing that, that God has given you what you need in this.
God, we give all these things to you. God, we ask that you would build us up as a spiritual house. We would bear with one another the things that we face, the things that we carry. God, that we would hold these things together and that we would walk through these things for your glory. We would trust you together for your glory and believe that you know all of our needs. You know all of our days. That you work all things for our good. So we thank you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.